1: and Stella's shared life was now metered in combinations of letters and numbers. QF01, leaking pipe, petrol low, permission slip on bench, kitchen table legs still wobbly, XX, thanks. Stella tried not to forget to put the XXs at the end of the messages. She had an instinct that they functioned like breadcrumbs, a trail that would lead them back to who they once were. As Stella walked in with the girls and two boxes of marketing collateral, She surveyed the vast grounds of the Harbour diggers and congratulated herself on her decision to host the event off-site. Fresh's best bucolic market-style grocers with their distinctive self-scoop section had been her professional home for the past seven years, but the stores had minimal footfall. Stella needed somewhere with clearance for at least 30 yoga mats and a demonstration stand at the front. There, Grace Harkness, a local cookbook author and influencer, would demonstrate a freedom pancake recipe she had developed but instead of using wheat flour and cow's milk, could employ tiger nut flour and hemp milk. Stella missed the days when a pancake was just a pancake.
0: Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Tori Hushka is a published cookbook author, food blogger and writer. Her first novel, Grace Under Pressure, was released in 2021. But today I'm talking to Tori Hushka about her latest novel, A Recipe for Family. Tori, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: A Recipe for Family begins with Stella Prentice contemplating what the day, Mother's Day, might hold for her. How is Stella's day looking?
1: Stella's day is looking hard. (laughs) Stella's not having a great time at the moment. I think Stella is um, a good representation of the challenges that a lot of working mothers are facing and certainly um, represents a lot of the stories that I hear from the women in my circle. Um, Stella is choosing to work on Mother's Day because if she's working on Mother's Day, it means that she's not going to um, suffer the absence of her spouse too much. Um, And if she's working on Mother's Day, she also doesn't have to spend the morning with her mother-in-law, and that's a bit of a tricky relationship in itself. But Stella is um, the head of marketing for a boutique grocer, Fresh is Best. Um, She's hosting a morning tea to celebrate other mothers, and she's finding it challenging to um, benchmark the achievements of motherhood. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of compromises that are going on for everyone.
0: What kind of a trajectory is Stella's life on?
1: Um, Stella is trying not to drown in the deluge right now. I think um, Stella is she's a mother of a four year old, and anybody who's ever had a highly strung, headstrong four year old would know that that can have its challenges on its own. Um, she's also a stepmother um, to a fourteen year old. And um, she has a spouse who uh, has a job that requires him to travel quite a lot and she's desperately trying to fit in in his world, which is the um, the setting of the book, which is the Northern Beaches, which is where my previous novel, Grace is Under Pressure, was also set. Um, and the Northern Beaches is a beautiful place um, but it's very shiny and um, it has a specific culture sometimes of, um, of wellness and earnestness that... Um, can take a lot to try and keep up
0: with. Stella has to keep reminding herself that mother is a verb as well as a noun.
1: There aren't that many new ideas under the sun, and I'm sure I'm not the first one to clock onto that. But for me, that sums up so much of what motherhood is. Um, It's so much about what we do rather than just an identity that is, you know, assigned to us. And um, particularly... The idea that I wanted to explore in this book is the way that women mother each other. That, you know, just because you gave birth to somebody doesn't necessarily make you a mother. And the way the mothers that we have in our lives aren't necessarily just those who raised us.
0: Stella's life as a mother is ruled by relationships and responding to the needs and maintenance of those relationships. And uh, I wondered if being a mother was a little like being an engineer.
1: That's a good analogy. I think um, so much of motherhood is about um, project management, forward planning, and um, mitigating risk. Um, And those are some of the the issues that come to play in the book a lot. Um, But I think the mental load that's um, involved in weighing up stakeholders' requirements um, you know, whether they're friends, family, work is certainly something that's um, that's monopolising her. But also in terms of engineering, you know, when things are working well, the wheels on the bus roll along. But as soon as something small gets into the machinery, it's very easy for the wheels to start to fall off. And um, I think that's what we're about to discover in Stella's life.
0: And Stella seems to be constantly in the process of either fixing things or um, engineering things that they so that they function well, and that's no more true than in the set of relationships that she's faced with. Let's explore a few of those if we can. First of all, there's her husband, and that relationship, as she says, has gone from lush ease to ossification.
1: I think that everybody that I know embarks on parenthood with a collective fantasy of that we will be different you know that other people are finding it challenging but we will we will be different um and stella is slowly discovering that um it's very easy for things to come between you particularly when that thing, you know, is a living, breathing creature. Um, So the early romanticism of her relationship with Felix has slowly sort of desiccated um, and they're now stuck in a daily grind of mutual obligations and simmering resentments to each other. Um, I think trying to find their way back to, you know, the place that they were before they had children, Um, is a challenge not only for Stella but also a challenge for a lot of people with young children.
0: And, of course, together they have Natalie, a four-year-old daughter, but it's also complicated by Georgie, who's a stepdaughter, and Georgie has an interesting way of describing Stella, second-tier fruit, melon rather than mango. Being a stepmother is a potentially tough gig at any time.
1: I think there is probably no more thankless role in the world than being a stepmother. Um, I have been very lucky in my life to have um, step parents who have really been wonderful lighthouses for me, but I cannot imagine anything more challenging than stepping into a teenager's life and trying to assume some sort of quasi maternal role, Um, particularly if somebody already is mourning or missing their own mother, which is the case for Georgie.
0: And, of course, there's two more critical relationships and around which this novel orbits, and they are Ava, who's a potential candidate for an au pair, and Elise, Stella's mother-in-law. And so this story really revolves around the dynamics between those three women, Stella, Ava and Elise.
1: I'm fascinated by triangles in relationships, and this was one that I wanted to explore, partly. Um, because of the generational aspect to it. I think there's a lot of unintended conflict that can happen when women, particularly from different generations, approach morally difficult situations but with their own set of values that have come, you know, from the generation that they're raised in. And so Ava is 19. She has come from America. Um, She's presented as the, you know, as the Hail Mary pass, as the hope. For Stella, of what if we got an au pair What if what if there was a second quasi mother in the house? The idea that I really wanted to toy with there was, you know, they say that you can't buy family, but can you rent it? And so Ava comes to the house, um, supposedly as something that's going to rescue Stella, but comes with her own series of traumas, having lost her own mother recently, and trying to fit in in a world that is shiny, new, and has its own series of um, complications to it. And then Elise is there somewhat as a moral bell tower for it. Um, I love writing in my books, and I did it in Grace Under Pressure as well, wise older women, <laughs> because I think there is so much wisdom in the women from the generation before us, and I've been such a beneficiary of it. And so Elise is um, Stella's mother-in-law, who is, you know, a staunch feminist, Um, is very disapproving of, you know, the potential of Ava being taken advantage of as a sort of underpaid domestic labourer, but also has her own ghosts of the past that she's contending with. Her career is starting to dwindle. Um, She's indignant about the invisibility of women once they reach a certain stage in their lives and their career, and she's had her own heartbreaks. So Elise is there um, partly to offer a redemption love story. Um, I wanted to be able to show that, you know, love occurs in all seasons of our lives. And Elise is also there as somebody to offer an alternative form of mothering for Ava.
0: And these, of course, are all ingredients for this recipe, and you are a food writer, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But first I want to get to this point of um, a recipe for family uh, is punctuated by Facebook posts. And they function kind of as reference points, reaching out, in a sense, to the wider world in search of independent advice, affirmation in some cases, different points of view. I felt as though that was an opportunity for both the reader and Stella to step outside that domestic world.
1: That's exactly what I wanted to do. And that's a carryover concept and and device that I also used in Grace Under Pressure, Um, I think any mother who has, or parent who has been part of a local area parents' Facebook group will see these as sources of great potential comedy. But they also work as barometers of the moral values of a time. They tell us what people's anxieties are, they tell us collectively how we feel about issues. And um, in A Recipe for Family, they're there to really highlight some of the difficulties that people have in trying to do two jobs at the same time. Everybody's trying to get things right, but it's virtually impossible to. Everybody's going to muck up at some point.
0: Now we've got to talk about food because this is all about food. And one of the really striking aspects of this book is the way each chapter takes its title from a recipe or a a dish or sometimes even a, a cup of tea. And they seem to set the tone for the events in each chapter. Now, we all know that food can uh, function as comfort food, and I noticed that on your eTori.com blog, yours is ham and cheese sandwich. (laughs) Yes, it is. That suggests to me that these chapter titles are, in a sense, uh, they have individual meaning. They're a connection to an emotional state, if you like, almost like colours as an expression of mood.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, as a food writer, food is the lens through which I see the world. Um, a good day is one that starts with a cup of hot tea, you know, and tea that's drunk hot is a luxury for most parents. Um, and a bad one will usually end with me having dinner, which is the scraps off the children's plate. So I think we meter our lives in terms of the meals that we consume and also the meals that we plan. Those were the textures that I wanted to weave through the book. Uh, they definitely do function not only as ways of highlighting some of the themes as it develops, but also of giving some of the characters personalities there. Um, the major role that food has in this book is, as you said, is to form comfort. And so there is some awkwardness in this book. It's about the compromises we make. It's about the moral murkiness that we all got stuck in, you know, trying to do our best in in impossible situations. And it's about the food that we turn to, to give us comfort when the world is hard. Um, But I also really wanted to explore the lessons that come through recipes, and particularly that inherited legacy that comes from the food that our mothers made us, and what lessons are contained in that. And that's done in a very explicit way, and some of the recipes are there, and in the chapter headings, through Ava's stories. And Ava um, has lost her mother, Um, And before her mother passed, she left her a package of recipes. And with the recipes came instructions for life. So they're not only passing over the tastes of her childhood, but they're giving her a path towards adulthood. So the um the pelmeni recipe, which is one of my favorite in the book, which is an Eastern European style dumpling, that's passed down to Ava with instructions of when you need to build a community of people around you, when you want to impress somebody, when you feel uncomfortable, you should make them pelmeni, and you do that because it is such a tactile activity. You bring a group of people together, you roll dough, you use your hands, you um, you fold, And there's conversation that will flow that when happens that. So she says, when you want to show somebody who you are, this is what you should make for them. And um, that was one of the first elements of the book that came to me, and it was one of the most enjoyable parts of it, because I feel like everybody has the recipes that their mothers made that they will turn to when they're having a very bad day.
0: It definitely follows through on that uh, notion that food brings people together, I suppose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was that was never more evident than during the period in which I wrote the book, which was during the two, you know, two major spates of lockdown. Um, I think we missed desperately gathering with large groups of people around shared tables, but also in our own smaller, you know, confines, the food that we consumed and created throughout the day became bright sparks that you know, wasn't necessarily so obvious before. Um, And making dumplings with my children was something that, you know, we did far more frequently because it gave us something to do, (laughs) partly. But also um, that was the sort of food that we were craving.
0: And it also reminded me, and as I looked over the chapter titles, that um, I got the feeling that any meal can potentially be a feast. And that wants me to ask you, that prompts me to ask you, what makes a feast for you?
1: What makes a feast for me? Um, A feast is about generosity, and I think that comes from really catering to what the people who are attending need. Um, Stella jokes in the beginning of the book that she misses the day when, you know, a pancake was just a pancake. But there is also this lovely sense of hospitality that can come these days of finding out, you know, Every second person has some kind of allergy or intolerance or some kind of dietary preference. And, you know, instead of viewing that as a burden, you know, viewing that as an opportunity to show somebody I see you, I care about you, I'm making something specifically for you that I know you can eat. Um, So for me being able to produce a feast, you know, of food that. Caters to the requirements of everybody that's there, whether it's you know making a bechamel sauce for a lasagna, but using chickpea flour and oat milk instead of you know wheat flour and cow milk. If, if I've got people who are gluten and dairy intolerant, knowing how you can switch ingredients in and out, it's an exciting step to get to in your cooking because it allows generosity to take on a different frame of of consideration.
0: My final question to you is about the input to this book and the process of transferring ideas uh, to the written word, the the word on the page. This book draws very deeply from life experience, so it prompts a rather obvious but important question. How much of you and your own experience has found its way into a recipe for family?
1: That's a tricky one. I I think women writers are often asked questions like this and we sometimes assume that we publish our diaries as novels and this is certainly not a diary but what I would say is that the things that I have written that have always connected the most with readers has been writing the ugly parts of life and really getting down into the gritty of you know what are the things that make us feel a little bit embarrassed and ashamed and um uncertain um in grace under pressure that was exploring some of the issues of postnatal anxiety um and in this one you know there are i think we all turn to alcohol as a crutch during you know during lockdown um and i wanted to toy with some of some of those dependencies in this book um and i think the frustrations that come with the expectations that you will be able to fill two roles perfectly all the time um, and the inherent disappointments both to yourself and to the outside world that come from that impossibility was something that, you know, was satisfying to write. Um, It was satisfying to write from the perspective of Ava um, and Stella but also from the peripheral characters in it and I think that's where some of the humour in it, in the book, comes from. great outbursts that come from the harried emergency room doctors who are being asked to perform great feats of craft for their children in kindergarten and are just you know fed up to the back teeth of it um but certainly for me some of this came from lived experience we had our own au pair for nine months um when my husband was traveling overseas a lot and I had a very unwell child who needed to be taken to hospital frequently overnight I needed another adult in the house And au pair is such a tenuous relationship because they're not an employee and they're not a family member it lives in that messy middle and the grayness of it all and so I think anybody who's ever had one understands what it's like to really be stuck in the muck quite a bit with not quite family not quite you know, not quite an employee and nothing is ever quite as easy as it as it initially seems. So that fed into the book quite a lot.
0: Tori, it's been wonderful to talk to you on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. This has been a delight.
0: I've been talking to Tori Hushka about her latest novel, A Recipe for Family. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.